Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with David Carmona. David is the General Manager of Artificial Intelligence and Innovation at Microsoft. David, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you, Sam. Pleasure to be here with you. It is great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation, which will focus on AI at scale and large-scale language models and a bunch of really interesting things you're doing there. Before we jump into the topic, though, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work on all this cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I've been in Microsoft for uh, almost 20 years, 19 and a half. Wow. Almost getting to that magical, magical moment. Uh, and uh, it's funny because my beginning with Microsoft, I was attracted to Microsoft. That was 20 years ago. So that was the, the like the big Windows moment, right? But actually, I didn't come to Microsoft because of Windows. I came to Microsoft because of, uh, at that time, my favorite product, which was Visual Studio. So I was a, a developer. I still am a developer. I will always be a developer, no matter where I am. <laughs> uh, and, and for me, working in Visual Studio has been like my entire career. Uh, so even if I started with AI and, and VR, probably way too early, <laughs> that didn't end well. So I ended in traditional software development, and I had a ton of fun with that. And I, when I moved, I'm originally from Spain. When I moved here to the U.S. to to Corp, I worked in in, in Visual Studio. So I ended managing the business for Visual Studio and all our tools like .NET and, and all of that. It was a super fun time because it was that big transition in Microsoft to open development. So I was lucky to do things like uh, launching TypeScript, right, uh, oh, wow. uh, or open sourcing .NET or making it cross platform or releasing Visual Studio Code, right? So super, super fun stuff. But then like five years ago, this AI thing started to become super real. So I was I was offered to uh, to lead a new team in Microsoft focused on the business, on creating a new business for AI. And I I didn't think about it twice. So yeah, that's where I am. So it's it's an interesting, so as you can see, my career is, is always like between technology and business. I think, I, I mean, not on good, but I think I'm in, in a great balance right now. So I have both. I'm, I'm super fortunate to have both because I work uh, connecting uh, with uh, Microsoft Research and, and the entire organization of technology and research in, in Microsoft. Um, my goal, my team's goal is really to connect that with the, with the business. So we work on, we, we define as themes, so like bigger themes of innovation in Microsoft. And then we connect those themes to actual real products and technologies that, that we can take to market. It's, it's super cool. And one of those things, we have many, but one of them, I think like uh, probably the start of the themes is, is at a scale. Okay. And so is the role primarily focused on taking innovations that are happening in research to existing Microsoft products? Or is it more focused on creating new business opportunities or is there some balance uh, between the two? Yeah, it's a balance. So we have the way that we work in Microsoft on our framework for innovation is based on horizon. So we have, we refer to them as the three big horizons, right? So we have horizon one, two, and three. A three, a horizon three are like the moonshots, right? Like longer term, new business creation, new category creation for, for Microsoft. A lot of that is uh, like uh, driven by curiosity in most cases in research. So we leave a lot of room for researchers to, to work on those themes. 
But then we go all the way to Horizon 2, which are things that are really about opening new opportunities or creating new opportunities for existing products. And you can go to Horizon 1 even, which is extending existing products, right? So making them better. So we, we work in that in that balance uh, between the three. Nice. And so you mentioned AI at scale as being one of your big focus areas. What exactly does that mean at Microsoft? Yeah, so AI at scale, I mean, we, we named that as a new category. So it's not that it's a product or anything like that. So it's how we refer to uh, uh, what we believe is a huge change on the way that we are going to see uh, people developing AI. And uh, it's driven by many different things, many different trends and technology breakthroughs. But I think the most important one is this concept of massive models and and what they mean, right? So this this ability to create now like these huge (laughs) massive models with billions of of parameters and beyond the, the technical achievement, the reality is that those massive models are opening new opportunities uh, that, that go beyond the technology and get into the business, right? So we can discuss that today. So what? Uh, so we can spend a lot of time on the technology behind it, and then mm-hmm. we, can, we can focus a little bit on, hey, but what does it really mean? So how is this going to change the way that any company can uh, develop AI, right? And, and uh, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And then there's a whole ecosystem around this concept like uh, that that you need to, for example, train these models, you need an AI supercomputer. So, so that's another piece of the puzzle, right, for AI at scale. So we talk a lot about the increasing size of models and, you know, particularly in the context of NLP and language models, but help us contextualize that. You know, we throw around, you know, millions of parameters and, you know, hundreds of layers and things like that. How is it shaking out or how do you think of this progression towards larger size models? Yeah, I think in, in a sense, uh, you probably remember some the image net moment for uh, for for uh, learning, right? So uh-huh. uh, that was, uh, I mean, many people are referring to this moment like the image net moment for NLP, right? So uh, because we get to a point that there's something that allows us to increase the size of the model, so we go for it. And then we see, hey, wait a second, this is getting better. So the more parameters that I add, the better that this is getting, right? So that was the moment in ImageNet with with ResNet, for example, right? That we added so many layers and hey, this this image classifier is, is working so much better. So we are kind of in the same place, but at a totally different scale, right? Of order of, of magnitude, right? So you think, uh, for example, I think, for example, that model, the ResNet model for ImageNet, I think it had like, 60 million parameters. I mean, completely different domain. That was uh, that was uh, computer vision. Now we're talking about billions of parameters. And, and, and when we see the progression, it's being like very, very quick. So uh, mm-hmm. if you see, I don't know, GPT-1, so the first version, it was like 100, uh, 100 million parameters. Then uh, I think BERT was like 300. Then you have uh, Turing NLR, I think it, at that time it was like, 1.2 billion. Then you have GPT-2, 1.5. Then you have Turing NLG. That was 17 billion parameters. That was last year. <laughs> we're not talking months ago. That, uh, we're not talking about, about years ago. And then we had just, just a couple of months after that, GPT-3 with uh, 175 billion parameters, right? So yeah. every step is 10 times <laughs> growth. It's a new order of magnitude, mm-hmm. which is super impressive. <laughs> So we've kind of transitioned from in the domain of vision 
you know, we would always talk about the number of layers as an indication of the size and complexity of the model. And now when we talk about these language models, we tend to talk about parameters. What is that and how does that tie to the architecture of these models? Yeah, I, I mean, behind, it's not that we didn't want to build these massive models before, it's that we couldn't. <laughs> That's the mm-hmm. reality. And I think the big breakthrough to really enable this, this uh, size of the model is the transformer architecture. And yeah, definitely a lot to say about, about that. But, but yeah, the transformer architecture, uh, it has, I mean, it's also based in layers. In this case, they are like symmetric. So it scales very well because uh, it has always the same number of inputs and outputs. So you can stack up all the layers. Uh, and, and it was a huge change because the role and the blocker that we had before with the scaling these NLP models is that we were using techniques as, as you know, as a, a recurrent neural networks, like, like LSTM and things like those. And those things are great because it allows you to connect, for example, in a text, the words between them. You can have some kind of memory. So a word right now can be impacted by words in the text before, right? And, and you keep that memory. The problem is that the way that we were doing that was very sequential. So, in, I mean, by definition, a recurrent neural network is taking the previous step as an input. So you need to finish that step to go to the next one. So that impacted a lot on the scalability of the model. So I think with the transformer architecture, we kind of broke that, that ceiling because now suddenly we, we don't have an architecture that is recurrent. So now in, in this case, it's all in parallel. We take uh, the, all the inputs in parallel and with some techniques uh, in particular, uh, I think the most important one, I would highlight two, but definitely for that to work, uh, two things uh, had to happen. One is the concept of the positional embedding so how every word needs to get as an input in the in the model the position somehow a flag of a, an indication on where that word is because that's of course important <laughs> it's very mm-hmm. important where a word is in a sentence to understand the sentence uh, but then the second thing is this concept of attention or well, in this case self attention which is a way to kind of replicate that concept of connecting or changing the meaning of words, depending on the words that were happening before, or even in the case of bidirectional transformers, words that are happening after that, right? And that's, that's a whole uh, new concept applied to NLP that is proving to be not only super scalable, but even performing even better than the traditional approach to NLP. Hmm. Uh, so how should we think about how attention works in these kinds of models? So I... I I mean, it's a very simplistic view, but I like to think of it because attention is not new. So we've been mm-hmm. using attention in, in other, even in other domains, right? Uh, like vision or uh, image generation, or I mean, the most simple example that I use all the time is is movie recommendation, right? So how do you know if if a user is gonna like a movie or not? So the way that you do that is that you take a vector defining the movie in you know in any dimensional space. And then you take another vector defining the taste of the user, and then you multiply those vectors, right, to get the, the distance, the, 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 like the cosine distance or similarity between those two vectors. And that's an indication of how much the, the user will like the movie. That's, uh, that's attention, but in this case of two different entities, right, my taste and the movie. In this case, self-attention is like doing something similar, but with the sentence with itself or with the text with itself, right? So, but in this case, 
the, the, what, the attention that we want to measure is the connection between the words. So how one word is related or connected to the rest of the words. And at the end, you're going to have like a heat map, right? So where every word is connected in some manner uh, with other words. So if you are saying the kid uh, hit the ball and he was happy. So he will be super connected with boy, right? So, I mean, it's super simple because at the end you have multi-headed attention blocks and, and then you, you have all these different layers. It's like trying to understand convolutional neural networks after three layers, you lost. <laughs> you are completely lost on what <laughs> happened there. But I mean, that's the, the core principle of it. Mm-hmm. Part of what's interesting here is that, you know, we've transitioned from an approach to NLP that was, like you mentioned, Prior to capturing positionality, you know, we take a bag of words of things that was at the document level, didn't capture where those words were, didn't really do a good job of capturing the relationships, but we're just looking at the statistical properties of a document or sentence or corpus to now looking at the relationships between all of these entities that make up language. Is that part of the power of this? this Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I would say that. And then the concept of, of training these models with the uh, self-supervised uh, uh, algorithms, right? So mm-hmm. uh, with self-supervised training, I think that's the other thing that that uh, was the explosion in all these models is how now, uh, because this scales amazingly well, now you can afford training these things with huge amounts of data. Like, for example, the entire internet, the kind of, right? <laughs> Which is kind of what we're doing with this model. So we take the text in the entire internet, and then depending on the model, and we can go in, in a little bit more detail in there, if it's a generation model or a representation model with smart techniques, you just take that, you take, you mask that test so the, so the model can try to guess either the missing words or the words that are happening after a, a given text. And by training that with that input that you are almost not touching at all, right? So it's, it's all self-supervised. Uh, and label and, and all of that, that the model can actually learn very complex uh, concepts and relationships. Mm-hmm. You mentioned different types of models. Elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, so I think uh, the, the way that, uh, and, and we can talk then more about, because at the end, this same concept can apply beyond NLP, but if we focus just on NLP, they are two main families of models. One is uh, the one that, that I think people are super excited uh, also because of uh, Turing NLG and because of GPT-3. Those models are generation models. So they are uh, natural language uh, generation models or NLG. And in that case, what the way that that model is trained, they are called autoregressive models because you train the model with uh, a lot of text, but then you train it to guess what is going to happen, what text goes after a particular text, right? So they generate, they are super good generating text, like uh, guessing uh, at the end of a sentence or guessing an entire document or guessing how a movie will will end or whatever we want to, to guess or summarizing text, things, things like those. And uh, that's one big family of models. You have... Um, Again, like GPT-3 is an example of that. Turing NLG is an example of that. And then you have another family, which is uh, more about representation. So natural language representation models. And the goal of those is more like uh, representing the text. So in that case, the architecture that is that is used, instead of trying to guess, or the way that is trained, instead of trying to guess what's next, what we do is that you mask some words in the text, and then the model will try to guess it. And they are called bidirectional because in that case, 
not only they look at what happened before a certain moment, but also after that. So they will look at the words before and after a particular word to understand uh, the context there, right? So those are really good to map like text to a representation that then I can fine tune to do whatever I want, right? So from super basic uh, sentiment analysis to question answering or whatever I want to fine tune the model. So those are like the two big blocks. Then I like to go a little bit deeper because for for each of them, there are two other families that I think are very relevant to understand, which is how, uh, so then there's more than one language in the world, right? So you need to address that, right? So in particular, where you are creating real products, so we are using these models in in Office, for example. Office is working in, in, I feel like, a hundred languages. So imagine doing this for every language would be very mm-hmm. difficult. And that would be the traditional approach of, of doing this. So we, uh, and, and Microsoft has been a, a big believer on the need of doing this thing in a universal way. So that creates a new family of models that are universal models, right? Universal language models. And uh, in the case of Turing, for example, we have both. We have a, a regular model and then we have the universal uh, language representation, ULR. So T, Turing, ULR, universal language representation. And that is super powerful because uh, what allows us, for example, in, in Microsoft is that uh, to implement features in Word using this, like, uh, I don't know, um, semantic search. We don't need to train that feature or that model for every language. We just need to fine tune it for one language. And then you have the feature for free in a hundred languages, right? which is mm-hmm. super cool. So very, very recommended to use uh, to use those models for that. Uh, this was, by the way, for people who want to go deeper, there's a paper that I like a lot. This thing was in 2017, where it explains this, this concept. And the, the example that it uses is how you learn math, right? So you look at, uh, well, not me. I wouldn't consider me bilingual. I speak Spanish and a little bit of English, but <laughs> my kids are truly bilingual. And when they learn math, they don't need to learn uh, that two plus two is equal four in English, but then dos más dos is cuatro in Spanish, right? So they just need to learn math once, and then mm. they can apply that in different languages. So mm. it's the same thing for models. So uh, you can focus on learn on teaching or training the core concepts, fine-tuning for uh, the concept, and then you have it for free in all the languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to dig into transfer learning and multitask. These are all things that are coming to mind as you're explaining this. But before we do that, we started out talking about language models as an example of these massive models that require a new way of thinking about, you know, AI as scale. And you mentioned, you know, the progression of the sizes of these models and, you know, it's 10x each time. GPT-3 is, you know, 10x Turing. And yeah, one question that occurs to me is, you know, is size the, you know, the most important or the only factor? You know, does it mean that each time we jump a generation, you know, let's just forget about the, you know, we shouldn't be using Turing anymore. Let's just use GPT-3 because it's 10x better. I think, you know, there's some obvious reasons why that might not be the case. Like if they're trained on, on different corpuses, like we know that GPT-3 is has kind of a very broad public internet. And at least with GPT-2, like there was a lot of critique about, you know, Reddit, you know, and, and the biases that get introduced there. So the, the training set is going to be 
an obvious differentiator that's separate from the the size. But I'm wondering if there are other things that we need to be thinking about beyond just the size of the model. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you are right. And I think, uh, so it's a very simplistic thing to just discuss the models of, uh, or the parameters of a, of a model. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's way more. I have to say, though, that the one thing that we're we are seeing is that the more parameters that you add right now, we are not seeing like the ceiling of this. So we keep improving the, the accuracy and the generality of the of the model. So, hey, parameters are, are important. But uh, then at the same time, it is true that uh, it really, so there's not one model for everything. So different models are good for different things, right? And in our case, for example, we, we, we during our family of models, it's actually a family because of that. So we don't believe that one model will, at least right now, will be useful for every single scenario that you are targeting, right? So in, in our case, we created that, that family of models, which are inclusive of, of many things, including many different languages, like this basic classification that I was providing before, or, or this, this metrics mm-hmm. of, of different models. You're going to need a model for each of them, depending on, the, on what you want to accomplish. But then even beyond that, because uh, uh, not everything that you do is NLP. So in the family of Turing in Microsoft, we, we have models that are even multimodal, that are including image and text, or that are focused on image. And that thing will keep growing. So that's something important to keep in mind. The other thing is, of course, the, the eternal debate on the importance of the architectures, right, that, that you're using. So I think there's a, and I don't have a super strong opinion. I think it's like everything, it, it will go through phases. It will get to a moment that just by adding brute force parameters, the thing will be very difficult to improve and we'll need to be a little bit smarter on on how uh, we can improve those models. We can optimize those models in, in another different way. But again, I don't want to diminish the fact that we keep seeing that we add more parameters and, and we get uh, more power, right? One thing that you said, though, Sam, I, I, want, to, I want to double click on that because it's super important. So it's the responsible AI implications of the model. I think that will be an, a, an area uh, for models to differentiate and to keep in, in mind when you're using a model because the reality is that right now these models, they have a lot of challenges from the bias, transparency, uh, and, 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 and others that, that we need to keep in mind. So we need to just, as we innovate on the power, accuracy, um, the, you know, multitask aspect of the generality of these models, we also need to innovate on the responsible uh, side of them. And uh, as, as you said, the, 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 the training corpus, that's important. I think right now we are probably way too late in the pipeline to apply responsible AI principles to these models, meaning that hey, we create things with these models and then just then we apply those things like, I don't know, like... Uh, you know, filtering or many, many other techniques that you can use there. I think we need to go earlier in the process, even at the point of the training, uh, so we can we can make those those models responsible by design. Do you have a sense for how we can do that? A lot of the power of these models comes from essentially taking the entire internet and building a, a language model based on it, or, you know, large parts of the internet. How do you apply the, you know, how, what are the techniques that we can use to build responsibility in earlier at that scale? 
Uh, so just uh, as an example, but uh, one example in Microsoft could be the Office or the Outlook auto reply. Right? So uh, what is so that is the typical example of a massive NLP model that is taking as an input an email and as an output is creating a likely reply that you want to that you want to do. Right. So <laughs> that scenario on paper it looks so simple. <laughs> extremely simple but when you get into the responsible side of it it's extremely complex and you need to you need to pay a lot of attention and it's not like a one-shot thing that you do and done you are you are you are golden the reality is that you need to apply that across the entire life cycle of the model from as you said so you mentioned one that is important which is the training data so yes of course we need to uh, get a subset of the training data to make sure that there's no toxic data that is uh, training the model, but that is not that is not enough. So we need to keep in mind things like uh, the, the privacy of the user, right? So think of how can we, so actually for, for this feature, we use differential privacy to make sure that the instances that we use, that we surface, they are not, uh, they cannot identify a, a user or things, things like those. And you can think of also the output as something that we also manage, that we make sure that they are short answers, that they are not like long emails, of course, things like those. So it's something that you need to do at every stage. There's a ton of research, active research happening right now to really tackle this super complex challenge that, that we have with these models. Mm-hmm. So but before we jump into how we achieve this kind of scale, you mentioned something in our pre-call that really uh, stuck with me. It's this idea that models are becoming a platform. And, you know, transfer learning is a, a piece of that. Fine-tuning is a piece of that. I'd love to hear you riff on on that idea. I think it's a really interesting way to think about uh, models. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not a new concept. So definitely we've been uh, seeing, so you see our services, in uh, the cognitive services in Azure, and they all support the concept of transfer learning. So you don't need to train a model from scratch, right? So it's a, but the reality is that a lot of what we do in AI is training models from scratch for your particular scenario. So we're doing everything that we can to try to simplify that process. Because if we don't simplify that process, it's going to be very difficult to really scale AI in a, in an organization, in a, in a company. So there are definitely many techniques to do that. I think in the area of NLP, uh, fine-tuning is the most relevant uh, now. And then we can talk about some emerging ones that are super interesting and cool. Uh, but with the fine-tuning process, the idea is that you pre-train, you can use a model that is pre-trained, like our Turing model, pre-trained on vast amount of inf- information from the internet, multi-domain, totally uh, general, and then you fine-tune that model. So fine-tuning meaning adding something to it. Like, for example, if you want to fine-tune the model to do a, a sentiment analysis. So you would add at the end, like a classifier or something like that, a binary classifier. And then you use label data. In this case, you use like sentences that are, you know, positive, negative sentiment. And then you fine-tune. So you train additionally. Uh, it's like extra steps of training of that entire thing with your added uh, classifier in this case, for example which is going to update the weights, but it's not starting from scratch, meaning that you don't need that massive data, the skills, because you don't need to change the architecture. Uh, you don't need the compute because it's, it's, it's not that much uh, compute needed. So that is certainly a, a huge step into democratizing these, uh, uh, and these, these models, right? So that's, 
That's super important. And not only you can do that for fine-tuning for specific tasks, you can also fine-tune it for your domain. So if you work in finance or you work in health or you are in any industry and you want to find a law company, so you want law firm, you want to fine-tune that model for the domain of your vertical. So you don't need to train the whole thing. You just need to train for that particular domain. Uh, so super, super important. But then what we're seeing is that these models can go even beyond that. And that's a super interesting area uh, right now. It's still in the beginnings. But what is the big difference with that approach? So in this first approach with fine-tuning, you are training the model at some point. I mean, not from scratch, but you're training it. You are changing the weights of, of the model. You're updating that model. You need to you need compute to train it. But then we have these other techniques. They are called like zero shot or few shot where you don't do that. So the model can learn in runtime. So you don't need to change the weights of the model. You have only one model. You don't change that model. Now in runtime where you are doing the inference of the model, you can, if you are doing a few shots, then what you do is just, you provide a few examples of the task that you want to do. And then the, directly the, the one that you want to solve and the model will do it, which is mind blowing <laughs> that it can do that. But then you have zero shot, which is like the mind blowing times three, <laughs> which is that you don't even need to provide examples. So you can ask one of these models, hey, I want to translate uh, this to French. And you provide the sentence and the model will know how to do that. It will identify patterns in the corpus data that was trained on and it will know what it means to be to do a translation and it will do that translation. Uh, so those techniques, uh, what, what they are really doing uh, from fine tuning to few shot to zero shot is making it much easier to really use these models in your particular scenarios for your particular domain, your particular task, or your particular modality. Super cool. Mm, awesome. Awesome. We've talked about uh, kind of models, uh, just a few quick words on applications. Like, you know, what do you think are the most exciting applications of language models generally or, or touring in particular, you know, within and outside of Microsoft? Yeah, so uh, what what I can do uh, because it's it's a, <laughs> it's a big one. Uh, we can we can talk for a long time. I can give you the, like an overview of how we are using it in Microsoft, and then you can get a sense of of the usages that that it can have. So in Microsoft, uh, the, the way that we look at this is like we always uh, look at these things. Uh, any technology is a uh, stack. So our goal always is to deliver a full stack. So you have. And that's our approach to any technology. So we do the research, but then we want to make sure that that research is available for others to, to use. And then we want to make sure that we keep adding layers, that that, for, for example, the first one would be releasing that as open source, right? So we add another layer. We want that to be part of, of Azure so you can train those models yourselves, which is the AS supercomputer that we are uh, providing in Azure to train those models. But then we keep building on that. On top of that, we add things like Azure Machine Learning. So you have another abstraction layer that can improve your productivity, fine-tuning those models, like the, the approach that we were mentioned before. But then we put another layer on top of that, which is cognitive services, which are end-to-end, out-of-the-box services that you can use as REST endpoints. And you can infuse directly into your application without worrying about doing anything with, with those models. 
And then on top of that, we build applications. So we made them part of our products like Office, Dynamics, or we create new products that, that weren't possible before. So that's our entire approach. I think if we focus on the application side, just to give you some, some examples of things that are already available that people can use that are powered by these massive models, I, I, a lot in Office, a lot of things in Office are powered by this model. So you can think of, for example, semantic search in Office. So you open a Word document, you search for something in that Word document, and that is not the traditional find and replace that we have before. This is semantic search. So you can even ask questions to the document and the document will answer those, those questions. That is all powered by, by Turing. You have things like document summarization. So you go to SharePoint and you hover on a document and you will see a summary of the document in there. Uh, that is uh, is an abstraction, so it's not just taking parts of the document. Uh, that is generated with with Turing. Things uh, in Outlook, like Outlook uh, Auto Reply that I was mentioning before, or things like uh, there's something called Meeting Meeting Insights that before a meeting it will give you uh, all the relevant information about about that meeting. So those are like uh, in the in the taxonomy that we were talking before. Those would be Horizon One. It's about making those applications better. But then we have this uh, Horizon 2 things that are hey, new opportunities that these models can open. And I think a good example of that would be Project Cortex. So Project Cortex is part of the Microsoft 365 family. And the, uh, the goal of that project is, is, is super cool. So what it does is that it's able to get all your internal knowledge in your organization by uh, looking at both the structure and the unstructured data in your organization. So think of document, uh, meetings, PowerPoints, anything that, that you have in there, even images, because it's able to scan and doing OCR on, on images. So it's able to crawl all that information from your company and then to extract knowledge out of that. So what we do is that we create this concept of a knowledge entity like imagine that, I don't know, you are in a law firm, imagine international, whatever, uh, uh, commerce. I don't know. I have no idea of, of law. But it's like a topic that then the AI system was able to extract from your information and it can it can help you a lot. So it can give you, it can provide you a summary. It can give you what are the most relevant documents for that particular uh, subject uh, in the in the company. What are the experts? So who uh, you should talk with about, about those topics? So it's mind-blowing, uh, knowledge basis, right? So that, that you can get is like extracting the DNA of your company so you can really uh, make it available for the, for the rest of employees. And like those, I mean, I can bring, so every any product that you can mention, we are using Bing. So it's another, of course, super important one. Uh, things like question and answering Bing, in a, even the, the universal search. So we use this trick of a universal uh, language representation thing in Bing, and those are all available in there as well. Yeah, so we use it for the number. Then more on the business side, uh, I would mention, in Dynamics 365, we use these models for a lot of different things. Very obvious one, of course, is anything that has to do with customer service, like customer service understanding or you know sentiment analysis, all of that in customer service uh, that is powered by these models. But then things that are more visionary. So think of, for example, in Dynamics 365, one of the things that we can provide is uh, like suggestions to sellers in your company by looking at any interaction with that customer before, like emails or documents, phone calls, whatever, right? So it's able to understand that unstructured information and give you, it's like a language generation, but in this case, to uh, 
uh, as next steps to your to your customers. Mm. So yeah, super super broad. We could talk for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's maybe jump into what's happening that's enabling all of this to take place now. One of the things that you know, when we think about kind of the the scale and size of these models, you know, we've talked about the scale of the compute that has been required to enable it. You know, how do you think, and you mentioned AI supercomputer, like what's that all about? How do you think about, you know, building out the infrastructure to scale and train these models? Yeah, let's say that to train a model like this in your laptop will take uh, probably thousands of centuries. (laughs) So... Definitely, you need a lot of scale to train yeah. one of these. And you need, I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing the kind of challenges that you get when you grow a, a model like this. Like uh, fundamental challenges, like, hey, the model doesn't fit in your GPU. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. uh, something that we weren't used before, right? So uh, I think it is like if you go past 1.3 billion parameters, something like that, then the model is not going to fit. So you, you better find new ways. But then it's just the compute. So the time required to train one of these models, you need like ultra parallelism. And and I think so uh, that's the main reason of why we focus on, and like always, like I was saying uh, at at the beginning, we we try to have a platform approach to it. So not thinking of fixing this problem for Turing for our models, but fixing this problem for our customers so they can use this infrastructure as well. So the, the approach that we took was building this massive infrastructure in Azure. So these are massive clusters that are that you can spin directly in Azure. And not only you can spin, then of course you have the complexity when you have, uh, these are, I mean, imagine, for example, the one that we announced a, a year ago, that is a massive cluster of like 10,000 GPUs. You have more than 200,000 CPUs. So it's massive scale. So how do you manage that? You need things that, that allow you to manage that in a distributed way. And then what is even more challenging is, okay, so I have my infrastructure completely managed. I can spin, stop. It is integrated with Azure Machine Learning. So you can like launch like jobs in that massive infrastructure. But then how do you actually do it? So you have a model that is, by definition, is huge. So how do you train that thing? How do you divide this task, this super complex task into individual nodes in your in your massive cluster. And that's a, that's the, the the other side of the coin, which is our uh, work on these like software systems that are meant to help you in that process. So this was at the same time that we announced the AS supercomputer, we also announced it's called DeepSpeed. Um, it's open source, so uh, you can use it uh, on, on top of anything. And it will help you do that for you. So what it will do is that it will take this training and it will distribute that training across a massive infrastructure. So it will know how to do that in an efficient way. And it does it basically, it's like a three, we call it a 3D distribution because it takes like three different axes to, let's say, chunk this task, right? One, which is the most basic one, is the the data distribution. So you just uh, split your data in smaller chunks and then, you have a, a, each node is going to take a, one of those chunks, but that is not enough. You need to go further than that. So the other level of uh, distribution that we use is the pipeline distribution, which is uh, because of the transformer architecture that like symmetry is relatively easy to uh, split the model in the different layers. So each node will take a different layer and then there's a lot of communication and optimization going on there that you need to take care 
And then the last one is the model parallelization, which is then even for each of those layers, we can divide in smaller chunks and each of them going to a different GPU. So at the end, what that allows you, uh, with a lot of work, so there's a lot of research involved in this framework, is that you almost get like a linear distribution, like a linear growth in your model. So you can see by the number of parameters. And by the way, this thing is able to take uh, more than one trillion parameters. So <laughs> you can train models that are not even uh, existing today. And you see the line and it's almost linear. So it's exactly what you are, you are looking for in the systems. Oh, wow. wow. And what about on the hardware side? Microsoft announced this Brainwave project some time ago to bring new hardware architectures to bear to this problem. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So, yeah, we announced uh, maybe a, a little bit more ago, but it's, it's, it's fully available now. So you go to Azure and you go to uh, Azure Machine Learning and one of the options that you have to deploy your model is uh, FPGA. And what, what that is going to give you, especially in inference time, is very low latency and a lot of you know efficiency in cost, right? So uh, it's, it's perfect for massive I, I always use the same example. So the, this feature in Word, one of the features power in Word by Turing is called predictive text. So that means that uh, when you type, it's going to give you suggestion on how the text will continue. So it's, it's, think of it as the auto-intelligence backpack for Word. 300 million users of Word, imagine uh, doing the inference of that model in every keystroke. <laughs> so that's the... Mm-hmm. That's the scale that we're talking here. It's, it's huge. Uh, so you better uh, optimize that a lot if you want to scale it to that to that number. And we do that. I mean, uh, you have to do it in uh, again. It's, it's like a game that you have to tweak every single step. Of course, we don't go with these multi-billion models on inference time. So there's a lot of optimization to do there to reduce the number of parameters, to even uh, using like techniques to make it more efficient. Uh, and then there's the hardware, right? So we use the Onyx runtime in, in Microsoft uh, that can optimize uh, not only for CPUs, so it has optimization for CPUs, but also for FPGA. So it's, it's a way of abstracting you from the hardware that you have uh, underneath. And it really allows you to bring all these things that are great to talk from the research point of view, but then putting them in action, it requires all this level of detail that is a, a new level of complexity. Mm. So this primarily focused on the inference side. Do you see any, uh, are there any particular innovations you're excited about on the hardware side for training? Or do you you see it primarily being evolutions of today's GPUs? I mean, when we see, I mean, it's super evolving. So we'll see the the reality right now is that you have to be flexible. So we are Mm -hmm. not discarding any approach, any at all, right? So the reality is that FPGA for the inference was super efficient because it allows you to change it, right? So it's programmable. So that was very, very efficient for that side and very agile. The combination of agility and efficiency was was the right thing, but that may change at at any moment. And as these things get more stable, then AC may be the the way to go. And and, and yeah, of course, we are not discarding any, any of those approaches. So how do you see this level of scale that we're dealing with today impacting the world for kind of users of AI? What what changes? 
I think the, the, the main theme, maybe bringing, bringing all of this together, is how this will change the way that you develop AI. So how this will open new ways of developing AI that, that we can, that we can uh, use right now. So that, that whole concept of creating more general multitask, multi-domain, multi-modality models that then you can customize for your particular task. That is, that has huge implications on how you can, one, how you can scale AI in your organization and how AI can scale to other organizations, like smaller organizations, right? So that for us is a, is a huge aspect of, of all of this. And the way that I see it is, is that it's kind of what we experienced in the last 20 years for software. And this is very similar. So <laughs> software, at some moment, we had the hard lesson that uh, software has to be super connected to the business. So if you have a team of software developers in a basement <laughs> not connected to the business, that is not going to work. I think we are kind AI is in a basement right now, kind of, right? So it's, it's, we are not fully connected to the business. And it's because it, it requires so much like skills, uh, so many skills and expertise that, that is a very technical domain right now. We need to change that. So we need to make sure that the business and uh, AI uh, come together. And, and we learned that with software, it's called DevOps. It's about bringing the two together and then doing small iterations on it. Is coming to AI. We are all talking about MLOps now. It's a huge area. It's our bet definitely in Microsoft to provide the platform to empower that collaboration and that continuous iteration and trackability of everything that you do in your AI development cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will be massively be empowered by AI at a scale. So you have models that can really empower like a more dynamic way so you don't have to create from scratch these models. You can iterate on them with the business and just focus on teaching your domain to the model instead of starting from scratch. That goes in that direction. We do think that there's one step beyond that. We are also seeing, we also saw with software that also needs to happen with AI, which is really going beyond the technology and the business and getting to every employee. So how... Every employee in our organization should be empowered with AI, just like they can use Excel right now to reason over numbers. What is the equivalent of that for AI? So every employee can apply AI and not only apply, but also create, consume, uh, mix and match. So having some uh, level of freedom to really apply AI to to what they do, that's uh, another huge area like the augmented intelligence area that these models, we, we may see it happening sooner than later. Awesome. Well, David, it's been wonderful to catch up with you and to dig into some of the work you're doing around AI at scale. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much, Sam. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.